Okay. Thank you all for coming. Uh, tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21, uh, verses 4 to 27, the rest of the chapter. Uh, I'm going to start reading from verse 1, though, so we get the context of where we are. Revelation 21. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, <clears throat> Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the, east, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, word of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for an opportunity once again to come together to look at such a glorious chapter of Scripture, God, as we look at our final estate. When we're physically resurrected and with you in a new heaven and a new earth, God, and I pray that you would give us all a real longing for that day, God. But I pray that you would also 
Help us to remember what it means for us now, God, that we are your church, that we are here to lead people to your light, God, that you may save them. And Lord, as we do that, we know we'll hasten the day of your coming, God. So we just pray that, Lord, you would work through us to make this happen. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the honor and the glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So last week, we looked at the first three verses of this chapter. We looked at the Old and New Testament backgrounds to what John sees here in his vision. We looked at the promise of the new heaven and the new earth from both Testaments. We saw how the Bible reveals over time the promise of the temple and Jerusalem becoming one and the same, and then that temple expanding over the whole earth. And we saw that ultimately all of this symbolizes our eternity in the physical presence of Christ. That's our final reward. That is our final destination. That is what the new heaven and new earth is. And as we saw the new Jerusalem, that's a glorified church, the bride of Christ. And these two symbols together reveal the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. It's the same promise he made from the very beginning. And this is what we concluded with last week with verse 3. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And we saw this is the promise that God makes from the very beginning from the, in the Old Testament. And this will be forever for us. Christ and his church in the new creation, in the incorruptible new creation. Remember, Christ will destroy the old creation that was corrupted by sin and death, and sin and death will be no more. And we see that here as this chapter unfolds. We'll be with Christ physically as his people. He'll be our God. And it's just such a glorious picture of our eternity. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So first, notice this is Christ's work. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is what he will do. And we've already seen this language in the book of Revelation. At the end of a second vision cycle, John sees the heavenly reality behind everything we see here on earth, and he sees the Lamb open the seven seals. And when he opened the sixth seal, John saw the dead in Christ under the altar of incense, dressed in white robes, also symbolism we've seen throughout the book. And one of the 24 elders asked John if he knows who his people are, and then he tells John this. He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we see here a pointer forward. We see here symbolize what we see here in the seventh and final vision cycle. God is in the midst of his people forever. He provides everything we need. And he also removes all of the effects of sin. He removes the curse from his people. And that's the wiping away their tears is part of. Again, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. Christ is going to act one final time for us and the results of sin will be gone forever. There'll be no more death, as we've already seen, which was the ultimate result of sin. Remember, God promised Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed, they would die. And death has reigned over those in Adam. But for those in Christ, life will reign. As the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 5, he said, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, meaning Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass. 
For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, and much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we live now spiritually alive. We have experienced our spiritual resurrection when we were born again. We saw that in chapter 20. And when Christ returns, we will receive the gift in full, and even physical death will be no more. That's what he says here. Death will be no more. So there'll be no need to mourn and no need to cry. All of these things, sin and its results, including death, will be finally and forever gone. And what John is describing here was promised by God back in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the restoration of God's people in Isaiah 35, and he says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Or later in the book, at the end of the book, when God promises the new heavens and a new earth, he says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. This is talking about the church. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And remember, both Jerusalem and Zion speak spiritually of the elect of all time, which is God's true dwelling place. He lives in us spiritually now, and he will live among us physically in a new creation. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is another reference to that same Isaiah passage we just looked at. This is the fulfillment of that promise here. And then God tells John this promise is being fulfilled, and he says to write something down. He says, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And we've seen this trustworthy and true before. It's been a reference to Christ himself throughout the book of Revelation. In his address to the church in Laodicea, Christ describes himself. He says, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Christ calls himself the faithful and true witness. Later in the sixth vision cycle, when the final judgment is described, we see this description of Christ. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Once again, Christ is the faithful and true. Well, here the same two words are used. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, we said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word here translated trustworthy is the same Greek word translated faithful everywhere else. There's a tie-in here between the one who speaks these words, the one who comes to judge with the sword of his mouth, like in Revelation 19, which is his word, and these words here that God tells John to write down. These are all talking about Christ. And what are the words of Christ John has to write down? Because they're faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
So the first thing that John is told to write is that it is done. What God has promised has finally been fulfilled here. This is the end of all things. Just like Christ at his first advent on the cross said, it is finished. Here he says, it is done. And the wording in John 19 is talking about his atonement for sin. His work of his first advent was done. It it was a completed act. It, it, It was done. The work of Christ's first advent was completed at the cross. Here, the it is done is an active plural verb. It it really says it should be translated, it's all done. Here, everything that needs accomplishing has been accomplished. Everything that needs doing is now done. It's all done. He comes in glory and he brings final judgment and final salvation and it is all done. See, at his first coming, he submitted himself to the Father and took on our punishment and he was passive in that judgment. He took the judgment. Here, he's active in that judgment and active in salvation. And that's what he's saying here. He has actively overcome sin and death. And for those who conquer, the same promise that we see in all seven addresses to the seven churches. Everyone who conquers is promised all of these wonderful eternal rewards. Here we receive eternal life and will be with Christ forever. That's our reward. But we see that for those who have refused his salvation, these sinners that he describes here, they will be once and for all judged and they will suffer the second death, which is spiritual death. But second, notice that we have here another self-description of Christ. He says that he is the Alpha and the Omega. This is actually the very first self-description of Christ we have in the book of Revelation. When John begins this letter to the churches, right before he describes his vision, he says this about Christ. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So with this Alpha and Omega reference and the reference to the faithful and true, both references to Christ, we're seeing the fulfillment of the promises that are given way in the beginning of the book, in the first vision cycle. We see they're fulfilled here at the very end of the book. So that means all those encouragements and rebukes and calls to repentance that were given to us in those addresses were given for a reason. And the reason in each and every address is that so the church would conquer, so we would persevere. So here, for those who have persevered through the sovereign preservation of Christ, we are given the fulfillment of all of his promises. We'll be given the fulfillment of Christ's promise through the entire book. Just one example, like the second vision cycle. We read this in Revelation 7. For the lamb in the midst of a throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes like we just saw. This is what's being realized now in the new heaven and the new earth. This is what's being realized when it is all done. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. John now gives more detail of what he mentioned back in verse 2 that we saw last week, when he said, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here we see the bride of Christ, which we know is the church, is one and the same with the new Jerusalem. Then came one of the seven angels, the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's us. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So the angel says, I will show you the bride of Christ, and then he shows him the new Jerusalem. The angel very clearly identifies the new Jerusalem with the bride of Christ. So this is not, once again, a literal physical place. It is a spiritual people who will be made physical when Christ returns. And note here, 
John says he's taken in his spirit to a high mountain. Now we've touched on this previously, but this high mountain language is, is significant. We've seen throughout the Bible, mountains are used as the place where heaven meets earth. It happened in Eden, which was on a mountain. It happened at Sinai. It happens on the Temple Mount. But this high mountain is used throughout the Bible to speak of God's presence with his spiritual people. And the first time we read of his high mountain is in Isaiah 40, where we read of the church of a spiritual Zion, and God says, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And we see here what's being described as the mission of a church in this present age, the spiritual Zion, us, Jerusalem, the place where God's presence is now. And then this speaks of his second coming, when he comes in judgment, and when his presence is going to be with his people like a shepherd with his flock. This all happens on the high mountain. The second time we read of the high mountain, which is what I think John is pulling from here, is in Ezekiel's vision of the new temple in Ezekiel 40. Where he says, in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And we'll see similarities to this in another few verses. And he was standing in the gateway, and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. We see that reference, once again, like we saw last week, to the man with the measuring reed. It's always used symbolically to measure God's spiritual people, to measure the true temple of Christ. And in a similar vision, note that Ezekiel is brought to the physical temple in Jerusalem. This is earlier on in his book. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes the jealousy. And behold, the glory of God in Israel was there like the vision I saw in the valley. Here's the point. See, in this vision, God shows Ezekiel how Judah has turned to idols and how Jerusalem has turned their backs and Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple. Later in Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel sees this new temple and he sees the glory of the Lord fill that temple. But this is not in Jerusalem. Notice where this is. He says, and visions of God brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. This is the same high mountain. What is this high mountain? Well, let's see where else it's described in the Bible. In the New Testament, we come across the high mountain three times. We see it first in the temptations of Christ. Matthew 4, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The next time we see the high mountain is at the transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And if you remember, looking at the geography of the New Testament, where they are here, this is Mount Hermon in Bashan. And remember what we saw when we spoke about the rebellion of the angels in Genesis 6. They're said in ancient literature to have left heaven and come down Mount Hermon. 
And as I said, Mount Hermon is where I believe Eden was. Again, I'm not going to die on this hill, but I believe Eden was on Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is what's being described in Ezekiel 40. And Mount Hermon is what is being described in the other place we see the high mountain here in Revelation 21. When it says, he carried me away in my spirit to a great high mountain. This is talking about the same mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. In other words, the place where heaven first met earth, where the heavenly council met in Eden, where God and man and angel dwelt together in the true Jerusalem, where the original mountain of assembly was, Armageddon, where that was, that was the place where heaven and earth meet. That is this high mountain. See, it makes sense that Satan would take Christ up on that high mountain where the divine council originally met. Satan showed Christ the kingdoms of the world that the council originally ruled over from where they originally ruled. And this is where Satan will mount his final attack against God. It is the mount of assembly as we saw Armageddon. It is the high mountain. That's why the high mountain is where Christ's glory breaks through for his apostles to see. It is where God originally dwelt with man in Eden. It's where Satan and the fallen angels were expelled from after Christ's first coming, like we saw in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20. And the symbolism of this high mountain is used throughout the Bible in Ezekiel and here in Revelation. This is our final destination. This is what it represents. The new heaven and the new earth, where the new Jerusalem will be where heaven and earth literally come together. This is where God's plan for him, man, and righteous angel to dwell together and rule over his creation, and we will in the new creation. This is all the same place. It's the place where God dwells and where we will dwell with him in eternity, in glory. He carried me away in his spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. What we have here is a description of the glorified state of a church. The New Jerusalem is said to have the glory of God, meaning this is the glory that God gives us at our final salvation, remembering Jerusalem represents the church. And note the similarities with this and the description of heaven from a second vision cycle. Let's go back to Revelation 4 for a minute. After this I looked, John says, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, which is Christ, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Look at all the similarities here. And he carried me away in a spirit to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. What we have here is another symbol of the elect of all time, only this time glorified. This refers to the same thing as the 24 elders or the 144,000 that we saw in uh, Revelation 7. Just listen to the descriptions of the new Jerusalem given here. John says it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We have represented here the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Remember, that's what the 24 elders represent, the Old and New Testament saints together. Here, the 12 tribes are listed as the gates of the city, this is, the physical, this is physical Israel that brought forth Christ, who is the door, as he said, to the Father. 
The 12 apostles are the foundation of the city. They are the foundation of the glorified church. As Paul told us when he described the union of Israel and the nations into one spiritual people of God in the book of Ephesians, he says, so then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that's Israel, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And here in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, the glorified church, is that dwelling place for God. But there's more because not only are the 24 elders represented here, so are the 144,000 of Israel that we've seen. We have the same symbolism of the 12 times 1,000 and the 12 times 12. Look what it says. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So we see once again, like we see in Ezekiel, or we see in the book of Zechariah, that heavenly being measuring the city. And that always refers to the people of God, as we've seen. And here he measures the city, and he says it's 12,000 stadia. There we have the 12 and the 1,000. He measures the wall. It's 144 cubits. That's the 12 times 12, the, the apostles and the uh, Old Testament tribes. But notice also the city is a perfect cube. That's our perfect number three again. And this is really a reference back to the physical place where God dwelt in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies in the temple. This is a description of the Holy of Holies that Solomon built. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which as we saw was a physical representation of Christ's presence. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. So the Ark of the Covenant, the physical representation of God's presence, was placed in a gold cube. That's what the New Jerusalem is. This is what it points to. We are now the place of God's presence. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rods, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And we see again that clear glass that's referenced a bunch of times in the book of Revelation. This was the separation between heaven and earth. But here it is said to be pure gold. Very clearly, it's not speaking literally. This is like that emerald rainbow we just saw from chapter 4. Clear gold is not physically possible. What's happening is that John is using spiritual imagery to show that heaven itself has come to earth. That God dwells in it like he did in the Holy of Holies. That that dwelling place is now in the midst of the church that has been glorified. And note here it says the wall is built of jasper, which we've seen before represents the presence of God. It is one of the jewels that Satan is said to have been adorned in when he was in the presence of God in Eden. It's one of the jewels the high priest wore in his breastplate when he ministered in God's presence in the temple. And it's a description that John uses of God himself back in chapter 4. He says, At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. We see the same kind of language here. We see where John is describing the new Jerusalem is the very presence of God. Also notice the measurement of the wall says it's 144 cubits by a human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, what's he talking about here? Once again, this points to the fact this is not meant to be a physical measurement. A cubit was a length of a forearm, 
You would take your forearm and you would say, that's, that's one cubit, and you would measure. My cubit would be different from your cubit back in the day. It's not meant to be an exact measurement. And an angel's cubit would certainly be different from John's cubit, so this is not about measurement. And notice the wall was only 144 cubits high. That's about 216 feet. But the city is 12,000 stadia high. You know what that is? That's almost 1,400 miles. If this is describing something physical, what good is this measly little wall in comparison to the city? And second, if the angel that is measuring measures 12,000 stadia high and the wall is only 216 feet, I mean, you think about it, we don't measure cities in cubic miles, do we? We measure them in square miles. What is he measuring for the height? See, there's no way this can be descri describing a physical place. This is about the reality of man and God being together. And here we see man and angel are the same. That's the point. Man is in God's presence, part of the divine council that rules the new creation. Man is now where God always intended him to be. And we see that further as the description continues. Again, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. That's a mouthful. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. There we have this gold that's as clear as glass again. Again, this is symbolic of heaven come to earth in the place of God's presence, but it also speaks to the purity of the new creation. Right? Pure gold was used to overlay everything in the temple that was near to God's presence, including the Holy of Holies itself. It was pure gold, nothing added to it. Because God is so holy, there couldn't be anything added to it. The same thing is represented by the clear, the transparent glass we see here. There's no blemishes in it. It is, it is perfectly unadulterated and clear. And this is about God's holiness and righteousness. So what Peter talks about in the new heaven and the new earth in 2 Peter. He says, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's talking about Christ and his pure holiness. That's what's being represented here. But also notice that the 12 jewels and the 12 gates of pearl, we have our 12s here again, but also this angel calls back Old Testament images of the presence of God. Because there were 12 precious stones in the breastplate of the high priest. There were 12 precious stones given as the garb of Satan when he was an angel in Eden. The description of the land where Eden was, we looked at this back in the beginning of our study, is described in similar terms. We're told just in passing, the gold of that land is good, bedellium and onyx stones are there. We see gold and precious stones were in the old creation before it was corrupted. We also have the promise of God in Isaiah 54, where God comforts his people with a glimpse of the future, and he says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, so it shall not come near you. These are all the same images being pulled in here in Revelation 21 to describe our new dwelling place, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. And then we have the greatest detail of all. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What we have here are two contrasts between the old creation and the new creation. The old creation had the sun and the moon to give light by day and night. The new creation has no need of these because the glory of God and the Lamb give the new creation its light. 
And remember, in the Old Testament, no one could see the glory of God and live. Like when Moses told God that if his presence wouldn't come with Israel, he basically told God, well, then we're not going. God says, no, you found favor in my sight. I will go with you to the promised land. And then Moses says this. He says, please show me your glory. And he, meaning God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. God tells Moses, you can't see my face. You can't see my glory. You can't see me and live. He tells him, you can see my goodness. Like, we can see God's goodness now in the world. He says, you can see my grace. You can see my mercy. But in this life, we cannot see the glory of God. But when we get to our eternity, as the Apostle John said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is us in glory seeing God in his glory. That's what's being described here. And remember, this isn't speaking physically, right? That's why there is no temple. There is no place we have to go to to get into God's presence like uh, Israel had to in the Old Testament. The city, Jerusalem, the church in eternity, we have God in his fullness in all his glory with us, among us forever. And we will see his glory and we will be glorified. Verse 24, by its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Notice how our glory and God's glory is all intermingled here. And by the light of the presence of God, we're told the nations will walk. These are those every tongue, tribe, language, and people that we see throughout the book of Revelation. This is the elect of all time with no physical distinction. He's talking about the whole world. This is the promise God gave when he spoke of the future, future glory of Israel in Isaiah 60. He told them, foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. This is what John is referring to. This is what we see here. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Notice here we're told there will be no night. Sun and moon are gone, now there's no night. Even in Genesis 1, there was day and night before there was even sun and moon. But this is just another contrast between the old and the new creation. There is no evening and morning. Our eternal state will not change. Because the light of the glory of God and of Christ will shine in our midst forever. We'll just bask in the light of God's glory for eternity. So the new Jerusalem is us in God's presence forever. That is the promise being described here. That's what this whole chapter is describing. And it finishes with this. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So this is the final destination of all the elect, all whose names are written in the Book of Life and the foundation of the world. And there will be nothing to corrupt the new creation, right? It's pure gold. It's crystal clear. There's no sin. There's no corruption. There's no curse. We will be saved from the very presence of sin finally and forever. Like now we have been saved from the punishment of sin. Now we are being saved from the power of sin day by day. And that is really the takeaway from this wonderful description of our eternity. This, this is guaranteed to happen. But we need to remember that as Christians, our eternity has already begun. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. 
He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's the same kind of language we see here in Revelation. We, Christians and the church, God's people, we are part of the new creation here in the old creation. We are a glimpse of God's glory here on earth. And this is why God gives us this glimpse of our glorious future. It is supposed to affect what we do now. And I want to end by reading this whole chapter of 2 Corinthians 5. Just listen to what Paul says in light of what we, we read today. Paul says, For we know that if a tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that in Revelation 20, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God.